So frequency domain HRV, we look at the organization of the heart rate signal at different scales. And that tells us a whole lot more clinically than just SDN or something like that. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Welcome back to HumanOS Radio. My name is Greg Potter and I'm hosting the show once again. To get up to speed myself, I've been keen to speak to somebody smart about heart rate variability, which I'll often refer to as HRV. So I was very happy when Dan put me in touch with an expert on this subject. Today I'm joined by Professor Stein, Director of the Heart Rate Variability Lab at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Professor Stein's lab focuses on identifying markers for cardiovascular mortality, non-cardiovascular mortality, and nervous system dysfunction from continuous recordings of people's hearts. But she also does work on sleep disorders such as sleep apnea and other forms of sleep disorder breathing, not to mention integrating various physiological parameters to differentiate normal from abnormal sleep, then using the results for risk stratification. Phyllis, welcome to Human Earth Radio. Thank you, Greg. Thank you so much. Before we get to what I think the majority of listeners will be most interested in, I think it makes sense to start with some fundamentals. So in simple terms, what is heart rate variability and how do you measure it in your research? That's an excellent question with a long answer, but I'll try to make it shorter. We don't actually measure anything from heart rate per se. What we measure is the time between heartbeats, which you think about it is the same as heart rate. So for example, if someone's heart rate was a very steady 60 beats a minute, which it shouldn't be, but let's say it is, the time between beats is one second or a thousand milliseconds. And that's what we actually use mathematically. They're equivalent, but we actually measure from the time between heartbeats. And we're only interested in normal heartbeats. And if people don't know what an abnormal heartbeat is, that would be a heartbeat that comes way too early. That isn't part of the normal sequence. And if you were looking at an electrocardiogram, you would see that that beat looked funny. So we're only interested in normal beats. And most younger people pretty much have normal beats. So if you have a listener who's younger and say, oh my God, how do I know? Don't worry about it. There's a better way to say it. If you're going along on a highway and there's a sequence of markers, that's exactly what we get when we're looking at recording someone's heartbeat. We get a sequence of times between beats, and that's what we use mathematically to derive heart rate variability. And I want to pause there and see if there's anything I said that wasn't completely clear. That makes perfect sense. Just in case the term comes up in conversation again, when you said abnormal premature heartbeats, are you referring to ectopic beats? Correct. If somebody is more familiar with the terminology, we would call them ventricular premature beats, atrial premature beats, or junctional beats. That's the basics, yeah. If you have a lot of those, it might make your heart rate very variable, but I think it would be completely obvious to anyone that that kind of heart rate variability is probably not a great idea. Also, in popular mind, more heart rate variability is always better. Again, if it's coming from normal, regular, healthy beats, that might be true. I was going to ask you to clarify that higher HRV isn't always better, so I'm glad you touched on that. Can you briefly overview some of the reasons that clinicians might measure HRV? Sure. The heart is driven by an internal pacemaker. If that is working at all, people get electric pacemakers, but 
there's an internal pacemaker. And the plan is to make sure that the amount of blood that the heart pushes out on the next beat is completely matched to what the body needs. And so there's a lot of feedback loops and brain integration. But fundamentally, there are two inputs to this pacemaker. One of them is from the sympathetic nervous system, and the other is from the parasympathetic nervous system. So in the simplest model, the parasympathetic nervous system is the one that slows heart rate down, that leads to a relaxed state. And the sympathetic nervous system is conversely the part that speeds heart rate up and leads you to get ready to run or fight or something. That's the simple model. And we'll leave it there for now, but hold on to the thought that that's really simple. Basically then, when the parasympathetic signal to the heart, also called the vagal signal, when the loudness, if you want to call it that, changes, the heart rate changes immediately because of binding of acetylcholine and immediate effects. When the sympathetic side loudness changes, it takes a tiny bit longer for the heart rate to change because of the second messenger signaling properties of the pacemaker of the heart. And I'm going to call it now the SA node, the sinoatrial node. Basically, what that means is that heart rate variability is telling you something about how the autonomic nervous system, which is the sympathetic and parasympathetic sides of it, are communicating with the heart. And if there's very little change in heart rate from one beat to the next and someone is at rest, that's pretty bad because it means that their autonomic nervous system is not functioning well at all. The most condensed way to say this is HRV is, when properly interpreted, a way to look at the functioning of the autonomic nervous system and potentially to look at whether some intervention makes it better or worse. But you mentioned sleep, so I want to throw that in here. Sleep apnea, which probably 20% of people have, is when you stop breathing over and over again during sleep because your throat closes down and you snore a lot. So this is someone who's sleeping and they're going... I'm not doing it very well, but just continuously waking up to breathe. When that happens, there's a huge jump in heart rate each time because the sympathetic nervous system comes along and says, wake up, breathe. And then they fall back asleep and it happens over and over again. So that would be an example of HRV during sleep that would be high, but wouldn't be anything desirable. So going back, you have this list of beats. It could be two minutes, could be five minutes, could be 24 hours, which I prefer. You do mathematical calculations on that list and it tells you something about how the autonomic nervous system is functioning. And the simplest calculation is average heart rate. So I'm going to pause here again and see if there's anything that needs to be clarified. We'll definitely return to uses of HRV assessment in sleep medicine. I know this is simplistic, but one question that follows from what you just said is whether you'd say that it's fair to say that changes in HRV generally reflect how well our bodies are coping with the cumulative burden of stresses we experience. Yes, in the simplest way. My interest in HRV has led me to be very involved with trauma work and the effect of trauma healing and the effect of trauma and depression and HRV and all that stuff. It gets complicated, but yes, if you're within normal range of HRV, it means that your system has the flexibility to deal with experiences. 
you get up and exercise. If your system couldn't adjust to the fact that you got up and started moving, then you wouldn't have a very good exercise capacity at all. Speaking of exercise, many people listening may be interested in tracking HRV to monitor autonomic nervous system responses to exercise training. But if HRV is quite variable and halter recordings are often recorded over more than 24 hours by scientists, how much time do people wear monitors to estimate their HRV? Well, let's back up to your readership, some of whom are probably staring at their device that's supposed to measure their HRV because there's a lot of them out there. Those do simple statistical measures like the standard deviation of the times between beats. If you know any statistics and the idea of a standard deviation doesn't send you into dissociation, you can see this curve in your mind and say, okay, well, that's the average and above average is this and below average is that. Standard deviation as a statistical measure is used in the most confusing and confounded way possible because the standard deviation of the time between beats for one minute isn't the same as an hour, and it's really not the same as 24 hours. If you're measuring the standard deviation over a minute or two or five, you're measuring your local HRV, which is just fine. If it's very, very low, that's probably not great. If it's very, very high, that could be excellent or there could be something weird going on. If you only have a device and you can't actually see the ECG. But where this got started in cardiology was that in the 80s, a group of people did a study called the Multicenter Post-Infarction Project. What that involved was taking about 300 people who just had a heart attack and measuring everything they could think of to see what might predict who lives and who dies down the road. And they put 24-hour holder recorders on these people, and those are devices that just record the electrocardiogram. And the reason they put that on is they actually wanted to count those abnormal beats, those ventricular premature beats, which is, in fact, a risk factor after a heart attack. And someone here who became my mentor, Bob Kleiger, said, well, why don't we measure the standard deviation of the normal normal intervals while we're at it? I mean, we already got these recordings. And what turned out to be true is that after you took everything into account, somebody who had a standard deviation of normal to normal intervals, which I'll now call SDNN, under 50 milliseconds, which is pretty low, over 24 hours, after you accounted for everything else, they were still three times as likely to die after the heart attack as someone who had all the other things going on, but their SDNN was over 100 milliseconds. Bob told me it was rejected by three or four journals who couldn't understand what he was saying, but it was finally accepted in a major cardiology journal, and it was published in 1987, and it got people's attention. And that was the beginning of HRV in cardiology. Before that, it had been used in obstetrics because they found out that if the fetal heart rate during labor, not only if it dropped low, but if the fetal HRV started to drop, if the baby was in trouble. So SDNN originally meant 24 hours worth of data. And I cannot tell you how many papers I've seen and even reviewed where someone said, well, Kleiger showed that low SDNN predicts mortality. They don't even say after a heart attack. So we measured SDNN for five minutes. It's everywhere. Does that make sense? Sure. That makes perfect sense. Can you speak a little about the prognostic value of HRV? And related to this, HRV has independent predictive value, but do you think it should be used independently? 
Depends on the situation and whether you're going to do anything about it. We're talking about the clinical application rather than somebody with a device, which we have to get to. I'll give you an example of where it could go. One of my students looked at women who have normal pregnancies, only 13 of them, and measured HRV during their sleep and sleep time. And what we had found was that, unlike what everyone was saying, someone gets pregnant and then at six weeks or the first trimester, when they're first starting to feel different, that's when HRV changes dramatically. And then it stays about the same for the rest of the pregnancy, which means that the human body is prepared to make a lot of cardiovascular adaptations up front before the baby gets big. We had one person in the study who lost their baby. She had two recordings, and they weren't normal. So I think one place research could go is to see whether early on the cardiovascular adaptations that the woman's body was supposed to have made are there. As a detection of sleep apnea, we do that all the time. We have studies where people are being studied for some other reason, and we get the recording, and we definitely look for that sharp rise and fall in heart rate of sleep apnea and probably pick it up about 20% of the time and send back the note saying, send this person to the sleep lab. And I'm not answering the question directly. I don't think clinically, in most cases, HRV is ready for prime time. But I think we're at the edge of it. We're doing a study of type 1 diabetics who get low blood sugar and they don't know it. And that's very dangerous because some of them die suddenly in the middle of the night because the blood sugar got really low. They didn't know it and they crash. We're looking at whether we can tell from their HRV when their blood sugar gets low. And if so, maybe there could be some monitoring I'll get back to that. If I think of a clinical use, aside from screening for abnormal beats or screening for atrial fibrillation, but calculating HRV per se from 24 hours and telling somebody, oh, you're at high risk, not yet. And the 24-hour HRV is driven a lot by sleep and sleep quality. And while we're on this topic, how do you think the prognostic value of HRV might depend on demographics? So does the value differ in healthy versus diseased people, for instance? I don't think it has clinically any prognostic value at all with healthy people, but that's the whole dilemma in medicine. That issue of sensitivity and specificity of any test is totally dependent on the population. So if you have a healthy population, the probability of having a lot of false positives is pretty high. And that can be very challenging because somebody might adopt the latest, greatest test and a whole bunch of people come in and then wind up with a whole lot of unnecessary testing because they were a but yes, if you have a high-risk group, definitely, that's different. My guess is that some people may have had the impression that HRV is a single measure, but there are, of course, many measures of HRV, including time domain variables, frequency domain variables, nonlinear measures, as well as a measure related to HRV named heart rate turbulence. And I know you've also used principal component analysis to show that aggregated HRV measures may be more predictive of some outcomes, such as frailty. Anyway, the mm -hmm. point is that each of these measures can be useful depending on the circumstances. Can you speak a little about why you might use certain measures over others? Good question. First, I think there's so many more devices coming out now, including, I believe, the Apple Watch. People can actually get a surrogate of their HRV for a short period of time. And I think there are apps that are out there that give them a number that they've almost made up in the sense that they've decided this number is important, so we'll provide it. For instance, if somebody is starting to exercise and exercise at a higher and higher intensity, at a certain point, you won't see any HRV. 
not rates of, I'm making it up, 110, 120, there's no HRV left. In that situation, just parenthetically, then you're starting to look at workload and how high the heart rate gets per workload, more than anything, how quickly they recover afterwards. Somebody who's very fit will recover quickly. Somebody who's very unfit and pushing themselves hard would probably take a while to recover. But the listeners can grab gadgets. They are out there and increasingly so. Almost everyone has a smartphone, and the apps and add-ons to a smartphone to measure HRV are combined with a very false idea that there's a measure of HRV that measures sympathetic, quote, tone, unquote, and another one that measures parasympathetic or vagal tone. It's just not true. But it's being sold that way, people making up stress indices and all that. Now, going back to your question, a lot of these devices will use a measure that we call RMSSD, root, mean, square, successive differences, which is an overwhelming concept until you realize that what this really is, is the average value of the time between beats. The heart rate speeds up and then slows down. You might have positive and negative numbers that would cancel each other out. So with RMSSD, they take the square of them so that it's not positive or negative, and then average that and take the square root. RMSSD is good vagal measure in a way because it really captures, on average, how much does heart rate change between beats. But it is also heart rate dependent, which they very rarely mention. I've reviewed papers again and said, well, RMSSD, this really came out, and not a word about heart rate. But clearly, if the heart rate's lower, then the average change in time between beats might very well be bigger than if the heart rate is higher. Maybe this is a good place to reinforce what you said before. There are statistical measures. RMSSD is a statistical measure. Another one is called PNN50. It's just the percent of the time that the difference from one beat to the next is more than 50 milliseconds. The one that captures heart rate is coefficient of variance, which is the standard deviation of variance statistically calculated from this time series divided by the average time between beats. So people do and don't capture that. But the time domain is just statistical. It doesn't tell you anything about how much and how scattered. With healthy, normal people, that's enough. The frequency domain, which manufacturers are selling, and you could get it from two minutes of not moving around. The best way to explain that is if you're listening to an orchestra and you're hearing one note, you could decompose that note into what's underneath it, the instruments or the frequencies or whatever. So one note is complex, but it's the sum of a lot of simpler things. So because an orchestra is one note in one moment, if you turn it on its side so that you're looking over time, then the whole heart rate variability signal can be broken down into its underlying components. And don't go too deeply into it. Just think it's just like an orchestra, except you're looking at it over a period of time. One of the components is high-frequency power, and that's changes in heart rate. Again, I'm calling it heart rate, but remember it's in an interval. That are happening at normal breathing frequencies, and normal breathing frequencies are 9 to 24 times a minute. And in theory, that's capturing purely vagal effects on heart rate. That's not really actually true, but that's what the manufacturers are selling. And the word that probably a lot of people do know is it's capturing respiratory sinus arrhythmia. 
if someone's asleep, not flipping around at all, when you look at their heart rate patterns, you really see almost pure respiratory sinus arrhythmia. Every time the person breathes in, the heart rate speeds up a little bit. Every time they breathe out, it slows down a little bit. And you literally see a pure zigzag pattern of heart rate because all that's going on is parasympathetic modulation of heart rate at the specific frequency of breathing. But you could get the same amount of high-frequency power numerically, which is the area under the curve, and it could be completely disorganized. If that's true, then it's not telling you the same thing at all. Even though RMSSD might be the same, the amount might be the same, but the organization, even in that part of it, isn't the same. So frequency domain HRV, we look at the organization of the heart rate signal at different scales. And that tells us a whole lot more clinically than just SDN or something like that. I'm keen to come back to the importance of understanding HRV at different timescales, but I'd like to first return to physical activity. As you mentioned, HRV may become almost non-existent during maximal exercise, and many self-administered tests of HRV enforce inactivity. But if people only assess HRV at rest, what might they miss? Well, if they're measuring it only at rest, and if they're lying down, they're getting probably pure parasympathetic control of heart rate. They're sitting up, they're getting both sympathetic and parasympathetic. The reason being, once you sit up, the sympathetic nervous system has to kick in to keep all the blood from pouring into your feet. It has to contract things. I had looked at some of the do-it-yourself literature, and the suggestion, and I honestly don't know if it's valid, is that people who are, for instance, Training And there's a whole conversation in literature about overtraining, the right amount of training, etc. There's a suggestion of every morning when you wake up, check your HRV for five minutes and see how it's doing and know it should vary a little. But if it's crashing, say your SDNN over five minutes was 20 milliseconds and now it's five, that should be taken as a signal that your body is overly stressed. I have no idea how valid that is, but that's coming up because so many people are playing with it. They will probably get a lot of misinformation, but also maybe some more information. In Europe, I heard this 10 years ago, there's a set of people, which I guess we could call the worried well, who have been uploading their physiological signals to a database for a long time. I don't know what's been done with it, but how much do you want to self-monitor? I would say at this point, the science isn't enough for you to say, oh, well, I was at 15 milliseconds yesterday, I'm going to 13 today. Oh, I better do something. But the training people have a big interest in it, and there is a little bit of the literature, but it's all very preliminary. There's also an HRV biofeedback literature, and I'm not familiar with it. Potentially, people are using it almost as a meditative thing to learn to do slow paced breathing and do it more deeply. It can't hurt you, but if it makes you crazy with worry, that wouldn't be a great thing. I know many exercise scientists and sports coaches who use some measures of HRV or pulse rate variability when trying to monitor the readiness of their athletes. But a dilemma the practitioners face is how to interpret and how much weight to assign the data. We can return to biofeedback later in this conversation, but I just want to go back to biological rhythms in the heart across different timescales. You study both circadian and ultradian rhythms in heart rate and HRV. Can you tell us a little about what different information these tell us and are higher amplitude rhythms necessarily better? 
Good question. I'll trade you and it'll be over several days. We do have a few recordings actually among type 1 diabetics that study was talking about of ultradian rhythms. But I think that circadian rhythms are where it really is because not only does it capture whether you're sleeping and awake, but within sleep, there's a normal pattern of heart rate where once you go to bed and fall asleep, there's a slow decline in heart rate until about two hours before the morning, and then it should start to come up. That, in the vaguest way, is a normal heart rate pattern. And there's paper which I swear we're going to submit. In fact, it's my next priority. A student of mine did this, and we looked at older adults in the cardiovascular health study who had 24-hour recordings, and they were 78 of them eventually developed dementia. And we matched them two to one with people who had everything else the same, age, gender, cardiovascular status, and a few other things. And these people had two recordings five years apart. So we had 78 people who became dementia, demented, and two times 78 people who never became demented on follow-up, but lived long enough to be diagnosed if they had been. And what jumped out was that the people who became demented, either at baseline or five years later, were so much more likely to have an abnormal nighttime sleep pattern. This failure to have this J-curve that I described. That doesn't mean everybody who had abnormal sleep developed dementia. But when we think of HRV or as total heart rate patterns as the sum of neuroautonomic integration, I mean, it is the brain, after all, that's fundamentally integrating this. It does make sense that if somebody's brain is starting to lose its integration, that one of the places you would see this is in abnormal sleep and abnormal circadian rhythms. And beyond Holter, there's more and more data about that. Interestingly, also in that study, people who became demented were significantly more likely to have a more than one hour change in their bed and wake times over five years than the people who didn't. There's a signal in there, is what I'm saying. I'm fascinated with that. I think that understanding that getting good sleep is central One idea is that when you have good sleep, your brain is cleaning itself up, including clearing out tangles that could lead to Alzheimer's. And I've always been one of those people who couldn't function without sleep. You said that people who became demented were significantly more likely to have a more than one hour change in their bedtimes and wake times over the monitoring period. Did you assess the direction of this change in sleep timing? Not the way we analyzed it. We just categorized them once we figured out their bed and wake times as having a change of more than one hour. But it wasn't in a consistent direction. But most people pretty much go to bed about the same time and get up at about the same time unless it's the weekend or something. And we're looking harder at that. We're also applying a technique that we didn't have at the time, which slowed down the publication of this paper called Functional Data Analysis, which will allow us to actually measure nighttime curve, if you want, in a quantifiable way. In the paper, we looked at the plots of sleep time, and these people look completely normal, and the reviewers would not be happy with that. But if we say at the end of it, further studies are planned to quantify this, it probably would calm down. 
Speaking of functional data analysis, a friend of mine named Alia used it to explore the relationship between sleep and glycemic control and gestational diabetes, and I definitely see its merits when analysing nonlinear data. Anyway, staying on the subject of biological rhythms, I'm going to pivot something that might initially seem obscure to some, but I think it could ultimately be an important topic as consumer wearables improve. I haven't really discussed this with anyone before, but I bet you're a good person to ask. Now, scale invariance seems to be reflective of health and biological systems. If you look at the heartbeat, for example, if the interbeat interval decreases from one beat to the next, it's likely to then increase the next beat. But these fluctuations occur over longer timescales too, such that similar temporal fluctuations occur across different periods of time. Basically, there are rhythms nested within rhythms, and in healthy organisms, this self-similarity across different timescales is evident in many processes such as heart rate and respiration. This so-called scale invariance can therefore be used as a biomarker of vitality, but it's obviously very hard to assess. I haven't seen any consumer devices that measure it, but do you have any thoughts on whether it might be feasible and valuable for consumer devices to assess scale invariance in measures of things like heart rate in the future? That's a good question, and I don't know the answer at all. There are people, and I'm not one, who are just fascinated with that kind of thing. I can say that there are consumer devices that measure respiration and heart rate at the same time, so the data might be able to be put together. But I'm going to move on to frequency domain. The myth is that high-frequency power reflects parasympathetic modulation of heart rate, which is true, but it doesn't reflect tone. Whenever I see that word tone, I go ballistic because it's saying you're looking at the ocean and you're measuring the height of the waves. You're not measuring the depth of the water under it. And tone is defined as what it would take to knock out the signal completely or potentially to drain all the water. And it can be measured by giving atropine for example, which completely blocks the transmission of the parasympathetic signal to the SA node. And it's measured by where does the heart rate wind up, which is usually about 100 or something. But you cannot measure tone with HRV. The other myth that's out there is that the next band down is called low frequency power, and that's from three to nine times a minute. The break point is that the sympathetic signal takes a while to have an effect. And at the respiratory frequencies, the sympathetic signal may oscillate at those frequencies, but it can't change heart rate. It just takes too long for a change to affect it. But down below 9 beats a minute, 3 to 9, the low frequency band, both arms of the system affect heart rate. And there's two myths out there. One of them is that low frequency power is sympathetic activation. Absolutely wrong, but I see it everywhere. And the other one is that if you divide low frequency power by high frequency power, you're somehow getting rid of the parasympathetic or vagal component. It's also not true. There's times when the LF-HF ratio is useful, but it doesn't tell you that. The easiest example is if you're exercising, your high frequency power goes to near zero. So does low frequency power. LF-HF ratio should get very, very high when you're exercising because it's mostly sympathetic activation. It doesn't. HRV goes away completely. Again, commercially, doesn't it sound wonderful to say you can take this device and you can measure the balance of your autonomic nervous system and get it right? 
and this is insane. The other part that's left out, and this is totally parenthetical, it's not really in the literature, is that where people are in terms of their autonomic state has so much to do with their history. So if you have somebody who has a lot of trauma and is hypervigilant, all the time. They're going to be in a highly aroused state, period. It's their default state. And possibly if they heal and become more able to move into relaxation, you'd see that in HRV. But to say that HRV is something and then you exercise and make it better is madness. So commercially, LF and HF are the things that people see. Those are the ones you can measure in a one-minute recording. The other thing about the commercial devices is they're pulse detectors. So they have some software that tries to take the pulse. Often it could be the sound of the pulse, depending on what they're detecting, or color of your finger as more blood moves in or out. And then they use an algorithm to try to find the true peak that you would get from an ECG. That's okay in healthy people, again. But one of the things that we do here, which we call research quality scanning, is that when we get a recording, we make sure that what the scanner says is the peak of a heartbeat. That that's really where the NN interval is being counted. If everyone is counted the same way wrong, that's fine. But you get down to detailed measures, and I don't know if commercially or consumer needs to do that, you need much better data than you're going to get from a pulse watch. If someone has very, very low HRV to begin with, that's a problem. You've already found it out from a very short recording. But I don't think your listeners, when they have serious medical issues, would be in that region. I appreciate your integrity when discussing your thoughts on consumer devices, Phyllis, and I'm glad you mentioned pulse rate variability for two reasons. First, people often seem to conflate it with HRV, and second, pulse rate variability and HRV aren't necessarily concordant. You can say mathematically, the scanners, so what they do is you have this continuous signal and then it's sampled, which is kind of like a movie. You can analyze a continuous signal, but if you chop the signal up so that every 1,000th of a second you have a value, then you recreate the signal. And the peak of it, you know within one millisecond. But pulse, you can't get it that close. There's no way. And it might not be necessary. Again, it depends on what you're looking for. You know, it's like I have a ruler. I can measure something. But if I want a much more precise measure, I've got to get calipers. We've touched on sleep a couple of times, but since I very much enjoyed reading your paper in Sleep Medicine Reviews on Sleep and HRV, I'd love to explore the subject a little more. You've mentioned the circadian rhythm and heart rate, which typically has a deer in the second half of the sleep period. And you also commented that heart rate falls during non-REM sleep and then increases during REM sleep, a stage in which it becomes much more variable. Can you speak more about uses of HRV in sleep medicine, perhaps beginning with sleep staging? Basically, once you fall asleep, unless you're falling asleep because you're drunk or heavily drugged, there's a predictable sequence of sleep stages, and I'm not sure anyone knows why. I did learn yesterday that the fruit fly, which is a marvelous model for studying circadian rhythms, they don't appear to have sleep stages. Mammals definitely do. So we have first stage of sleep, which is called N1, where you're kind of aware of what's going on, but you're not really awake. And then stage two, where you're really asleep. And the stage two and stage three are the stages of deep sleep. And then you go into REM, which is when your body is usually immobile, but your mind is very active. 
and you go through that over usually about a 90-minute period. We have some sleep studies where we have the ECG channel and the staging every 30 seconds is how they do it. Once you're in stage two sleep, it's easily identifiable on a plot of heart rate versus time because that's the period when you just have pretty much pure respiratory sinus arrhythmia. There might be jumps in heartbeat where someone changes position, but mean heart rate doesn't change very much, and you have this zigzag of respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And there is definitely a huge difference from one person to the next about how much there is. I don't know if it's modifiable or not, but in our pregnancy study that I mentioned, there are some of them that just have staggering amounts of respiratory sinus arrhythmia during sleep. When you go into stage three, there's less respiratory sinus arrhythmia, but that's still not moving around. And when you go into REM, the whole heart rate signal gets very complicated because there's a lot of sympathetic activation, but no actual movement in REM. So you can spot it because you've lost that regular quality and it's just gotten much more complicated. And then people usually arouse at the end of the stage, go back to sleep and do it again. Through the sleep cycles, REM gets longer and more intense at the end of sleep. But you can kind of pick it up from a recording. I wouldn't recommend somebody do that to do their own sleep study. But what you can pick up, which is really important, is things like periodic limb movements, which maybe people know they have anyway. When people lie down and try to fall asleep and their leg keeps jerking or waking them up, that can be picked up. Sleep apnea can be picked up, and rather than going to the sleep lab initially, I think it's a good screen for sleep quality. Arousing a lot, not even necessarily from respiration, can be picked up. And if somebody's having a lot of arousals during the night, unless they have a spouse that's waking them up or an animal, there's something going on there. Obstructive sleep apnea happens because the throat closes down and you try to breathe. And you see respiratory sinus arrhythmia during the obstruction, but there's not enough air getting through. A lower degree of that is called obstructive hypopnea. It has the same effect, but the arousals are more frequent. Central apnea is when the signal to breathe doesn't come for a while, and that has a characteristic shape, and it tends to go with heart failure. I think, especially because people are waking up in the morning, just know whether they feel rested or not. And I think there's a set of people, because of their work schedules, who are never rested in the morning. As we are now beginning to take getting enough sleep much more seriously, including, for example, in some schools here, there's a movement to make the start of the school day later for teenagers because for some reason or other, their sleep cycles are such that when they have to get up early to go to school, they're out of phase and they will concentrate. It certainly would show getting up during the night because you have to go to the bathroom or something, the heart rate's up for a while. I think that self-monitoring of sleep in a society that will allow you to do something about it is useful. Still, we have this culture of just be tough. So what if you're a resident and don't get any sleep for two days? It's good training, right? Only it's not. And I think the connection between sleep and dementia is getting clearer and clearer. And real sleep, because if you're drugged out or drunk or something, your brain doesn't do the same thing. I just saw an article on a poster on Facebook, actually, that in cities where there's a lot of light, where it's never dark, that that per se is a trigger for insomnia in older adults. They may be perfectly healthy and fine, but they can't sleep because there's too much light. 
I could pick up on many things you just said then, but I'll pick just a couple. One is that sleep timing delays during adolescence and people such as Mary Cascaden have shown that it's probably largely a result of increased sensitivity to the delaying effects of late light exposure on circadian phase in these people. And this is, of course, a problem with increasing nocturnal artificial light pollution. Second, I think Till Roneberg has presented data showing that mid-sleep time is later in urban environments, and that's probably largely a result of people living in these areas being exposed to weak time cues, so not enough light exposure during the day and too much at night. Well, I actually put on blue blockers at 8 o'clock at night, and my computer has flux on it, so the screen turns yellow. The iPhone and iPad, they'll do that too if you tell them to, because I'm really aware of that. And even now, I'm probably not sleepy when I go to bed, but at least I'm living within the same circadian rhythm. And that's very important to me. I guess with the smartphones and readers, it's also becoming more and more of a known issue. I think most people don't realize that the amount of light they're seeing, especially blue light at night, has any effect on their sleep. I certainly think it's a smart idea to try and get that kind of digital sunset that you mentioned. And I suppose the other side of the conversation is that getting plenty of daytime sunlight will help anchor circadian phase and sleep timing and reduce the negative effects of nighttime exposure to artificial light. Incidentally, Dan, our CEO, just gave a great TEDx talk on the effects of light on health. Returning to HRV, which factors should be standardized by people who wish to quantify their own HRV? Depends on what they want. If they have a device that will store their HRV over a longer period and upload it or whatever, that's great. For example, one of the things I might propose to someone is measure your HRV for five minutes and then meditate for a while, whatever it is that you do your meditation, and see if it changes anything. I'm sure it will, but it would be very reinforcing to see that. But the thing, again, that's not as prominently known is that if you're stressed out, for example, it may very well be that you can learn to downshift. And that's a very valuable tool. But I don't think that has a quick fix quality because, as I said, I think a lot of where we live physiologically is a result of a lot of accumulated experiences, including trauma, early experiences, noise, whatever's going on. But the approach is, well, you have this HRV and you do something and you fix it and now you're okay. It's not quite like that. But it can't hurt to do something to improve it. The heart math people, and I hope they don't listen to this interview, I've had issues with them for a long time, and most of us have, because when I get emails from them, I don't open them and say, gosh, I wonder what they're going to do next. And yet at the same time, I wrote a paper on energy medicine and the application of energy medicine with the heart math people. There's a difference between something that's helpful and something that really does something with the underlying issue. Does that make sense? Sure it does. We can do things to temporarily mask issues, but the underlying problems remain. Right. Well, or even do better. People can improve their diets. They'll do better. But will it change the fact that they've eaten junk all their lives? Not exactly. I think also what it can do for people sometimes is make them more tuned in to their bodies. Because I think there are a lot of people going around who actually don't know in any moment what their state is. And I've seen scales on a scale of one to 10, just rate how tense you are and notice it. In order to do our lives, we're trained not to even notice how we are unless we're really in dark straits. 
So using this to get more access to your body and what your body's trying to say and to learn to downshift, I think that's useful. It's ironic that while it's easy for people to become less attuned to their bodies in our attention economy, technology can also be used to help us get back in touch with our states. I'm glad that you mentioned meditation and also that meditation has risen in popularity in recent years. I'm generally hesitant to mention that I've had a daily mindfulness practice for the last few years because some people then look at you as if you have two heads. But when people understand that at its core, mindfulness is really simply about training yourself to non-judgmentally pay closer attention to your experience, they begin to realize that it can be very useful. Exactly. And in our country, in certain circles, the word mindfulness, it's kind of like what we're talking about with HRV. Well, just do mindfulness and your life will be wonderful. There's actually a set of people who should not do mindfulness because instead of putting them in a more relaxed state, it puts them more in touch with overwhelming feelings that they've been not dealing with. And I was told this, that serious meditation retreats now try to have someone trained in trauma there so that if somebody's meditation sends them into a flashback, they don't have to send them to the emergency room. I certainly agree that no intervention is right for everyone, but I suppose some people would counter that in that mindfulness can train people to have striking equanimity, which has probably been shown most vividly by monks undergoing self-immolation. Just to play devil's advocate, while coming to terms with repressed feelings may be difficult in the short term, might it not be a good thing further down the line? Yes and no. I'm a trained somatic experiencing practitioner. And somatic experiencing is actually about restoring healthy functioning of the autonomic nervous system, getting people out of permanent activation or permanent collapse and gradually building a window of tolerance so that they can feel more without going over the edge. I just said, oh my gosh, that's why I've been studying HRV this whole time. And a year later, I started the training. In SE, the idea is to titrate the experience and go back to safety. It's not considered a great idea to go back into a full traumatic flashback because you haven't built in resources to integrate it. But yes, it needs to be integrated because otherwise you've got part of your energy trapped in the past. The idea is that when things happen when you're a kid or even when you're in a car wreck, I mean, Your body knows there's a threat, but it doesn't get completed. Your body doesn't know that you became safe again afterwards. And there hasn't been a way to release the energy of the shock of this event. So SE is about updating the system so that A, you know you're safe now, and B, the car's coming at you, your whole body's like, "Ah!" and releasing that by shaking or moving or whatever it is you needed to do that you didn't get to do because it happened too fast. So there's the piece of slowing things down so that there's time, and that's what you do in your meditation too. So it's time to notice what's happening and then following what needed to happen but didn't happen because it all happened so fast. I didn't expect our conversation to go in that direction, but I'm pleased that it did. Going back to people who want to try HRV, I'm not sure we fully fleshed out our ideas on what people should standardise while assessing their HRV. Obviously, many factors can influence HRV, such as time of day, diet and sleep. So what would you recommend that people keep constant when monitoring HRV for a short period of time each day? I think that first thing in the morning is the most standard time there is, unless you've got a screaming kid or something going on. Some people, and this includes my partner, 
meditate after they take a shower. The timing of the shower might change, but it takes a very hot shower and then does a long meditation. But I think it would be very interesting and reinforcing to measure HRV before the meditation. Do the meditation, you measure HRV during it, and then afterwards. I think that would be fascinating. And if somebody found that doing meditation really, really stabilized their HRV, brought it up, brought their heart rate down, whatever, I think that would be very reinforcing for doing the meditation. And my only caveat to that is what we said before, which is being in touch with your body rather than reading numbers and deciding that they're telling you how you feel. But it could be, though, that measuring HRV could help give you awareness. That is, you can say, oh, oh, I feel a little jumpy now. and I wonder what my HRV is like when I feel jumpy. And then do something to bring yourself down, can, and check it again. I know you've studied the effects of interventions such as change in dietary fatty acid composition on HRV. Has any of this work influenced your own lifestyle? Mm-hmm. No, I haven't thought of it in terms of HRV. I'm a vegetarian. I'm lactose intolerant, and I'm also wheat intolerant, so that drives my diet. And I don't eat junk food because it's made with wheat, or I just don't like it. So I eat as well as I can, and sleep as well as I can, which is a challenge, and exercise every day. But I don't look at it in terms of measuring my HRV. I wore a halter when I first started in this lab. I was shocked to find that my heart rate got so low at night that I would get abnormal beats. I would get ventricular premature beats because the way the heart works is that it's designed to beat on its own. That is, if it doesn't get a signal to beat, it will beat on its own. And my heart rate was so low that BPCs, ventricular premature beats, are caused by irritable place, not at the pacemaker, but in the part that contracts. And I was getting abnormal beats because my heart rate was so slow. I don't know, I'm just not much into the worried well, but I know that the technology is just going to keep going forward. More and more people are going to decide they want to measure their HRV and they're going to buy into some package or other that says what their, quote, synthetic or parasympathetic index is, and they're going to worry about that. Looking to the future, what are you excited to study in years to come? I'll answer two ways. We have a huge database of more than 20,000 overnight holder recordings, and we've written up a lot of those studies. But as the methodology improves, you get more and more measures. There's one that someone at Harvard, Madalena Costa, who's quite brilliant, has developed called heart rate fragmentation. And she believes that that will measure the truly parasympathetic component of B2B changes in heart rate variability. So we're going to apply that to all different studies that we've already analyzed to see if it tells us something more. And Steve Porges, who's at the Kinsey Institute in Indiana, he has proposed a model, which I believe in, kind of hierarchical evolutionary model of the autonomic nervous system that says that the first parasympathetic component, which he calls the dorsal vagus, exists in reptiles. And what it's used for is if there's a threat, it causes them to be immobilized and slow down their metabolism. So it's kind of the old vagus. And then evolutionarily, the sympathetic system showed up. Reptiles, I don't know if they have it or not, 
Mammals, though, have another form of vagal control, which he calls the ventral vagus. And that's the one that causes respiratory sinus arrhythmia, but that's developed early on when there's really good connection between a mother and child, where they're looking at each other and loving each other and responding to each other. And Steve's very interested in Madalena's heart rate fragmentation number because he's developed another measure that may measure the same thing. And we're going to collaborate. And I have, Lord knows how many recordings from the Sleep Heart Health Study of people who had holder recordings. And a couple of years later, they had overnight sleep studies. And then three years later, they had another one. And we're going to see if his measures and heart rate fragmentation and all those measures go to My personal interest is definitely in trauma and trauma healing and seeing how that all relates to HRV, but I'm buried in studies. What happens is we get students in and they want a project. I have three students now doing projects. We published a paper showing that if you have in older adults a risk score for heart failure based on all the other risks, you know, you can get risk scores, that heart rate variability adds to the prediction of developing heart failure in that group. We also published one about stroke, same cohort, cardiovascular health study, using a stroke risk score. Does knowing heart rate variability give you anything beyond the stroke risk score? Yes, it does. And we're about to do two more. One of them is a cardiovascular health study has a diabetes risk score. So if people aren't diabetic, their risk of developing it on follow-up. These are people that were over 65 and followed unto death, and they're not all dead yet. So we're proposing the same thing. There is a diabetes risk score. Does HRV add to it? There's a dementia risk score, and Madalena's looking at her measure and whether it predicts dementia, but we want to do the same thing again. Given everyone's dementia risk score, does their HRV from the same period help identify people who are at higher risk? I'm real sure it will. We're actually doing a project now, which is ongoing, of people who have sarcoma, chronic cancer, and they get chemotherapy with doxazosin, which is known to hurt the heart, doxorubicin, sorry. And what they normally do is they give it to them every round of chemo, and they use an echocardiogram to see whether the heart is functioning normally. So what we're doing in this study is at the same time that they get their chemo every month, we're getting a 24-hour Holter. And we're seeing whether the Holter will tell you before or at the same time as or later that this chemo needs to be stopped. And that's pretty exciting. And next year, there's going to be an MRI scanner here that's being brought in from China that's apparently able to really look at the heart and look at fibrosis and all sorts of things like that. And it's going to be applied to people getting chemotherapy. We're looking at how can we get HRV on them. That will be just fascinating. That sounds very interesting. There are exciting times ahead. Is there a question that you're often asked that you think I should have asked but haven't? No, because people who have no idea what HRV is don't know what to ask. No, I think you focused on the central question, which is evolving because of the commercial application HRV now. People want to make money from HRV. Think about pulse. Should people be monitoring their heart rate every day? I mean, you put your fingers on your wrist and take your pulse. Should you? I don't think so. But if there's something going on, like you're going into AFib, maybe you should. But otherwise, why? Finally, what's the best way for people to stay up to date with your work, Phyllis? 
Our lab is a website that is not updated, but what the heck. And on the website, there's a way to contact me. And the website is hrv underscore lab edu. They go there, they can get a hold of me. We do have an HRV lab page on Facebook, but it's mostly to keep up with news of people who've been in the lab. I also actually run the Somatic Experiencing Research Coalition Facebook page. And if people are interested in mind-body stuff, anything that I get that's relevant to that, I'll post there. And that's an open site. You don't have to be a member of it. I'll be sure to link to all of those. Phyllis, thanks so much for your time. I admire your work and have really enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.